Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, we have a recent conversation I had with Craig Anderson. Uh, he is a uh, resident of Southern Utah and uh, had a long career with the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID. So we talk about uh, some hot spots around the world and uh, the mission of that agency with Craig Anderson. Here's my recent conversation with him. I'm talking with uh, Craig Anderson, who uh, for many years was with the USAID, United States Agency for International Development, now is an international development consultant living in St. George. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And originally from Cache Valley? I am. Born and raised in Logan. And, uh, of course, went to school here as well. Got a, both a BA and a master's degree from Utah State University. And so international development consultant, what are you, what are you doing? Who are, who are you consulting with? Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm almost retired from that now due to some personal health concerns. But uh, I, um, my career was with the United States Agency for International Development, as you said. And uh, I'm an agricultural specialist. And um, so during my career, of course, I had a lot of experience working with a wide range of development activities in other countries. Uh, and as a retired Foreign Service officer, I decided that I would like to make my services available to, to the U.S. government or to other parties that are interested in, in the kind of skills that I have to help advance primarily USAID projects or interests overseas. So since retirement, I worked for three different three-month stints in Pakistan working for my former agency, but helping them because they needed some additional help during the times of flood, the, the flood in Pakistan and other concerns they had to advance agricultural programs there. That's, that's an example of some work that I did during nine months uh, over the last few years, yes. So USAID, I, before I looked it up, because I know I was going to talk to you, and maybe I could stand in for our audience. I had a vague impression that they help with elections and try to spread democracy. That is one of the activities. One that of their activities, but they're but I'm learning there's there's a whole lot else that they do. They do. Do you want me to explain yes. some of those a little bit? Yes. Okay. Well, first of all, as a backdrop, I want to say, and this needs to be made clear to everyone, that U.S. foreign aid is a very minimal part of the U.S. government budget. There are surveys that show that people in general believe that up to 25% of the U.S. budget annually goes to foreign assistance, aid to other countries, when in reality it's less than 1% of the U.S. budget for foreign aid. So even though it may be several billions of dollars in total, it's still only a very small fraction of the U.S. government. Uh, programs uh, to help other countries. Okay, so uh, let me let me just go uh, ahead. pause you right there. Um, still, even even with that small fraction, yeah, in some circles, from time to time, it's controversial, right? Because why are we sending aid overseas? Why don't we solve the problems at home? You've probably heard this, of course. And there is that debate, and it's a legitimate debate. Um, and, and, of course, it needs to be revisited from time to time. And Congress, believe me, is always reviewing the U.S. foreign aid program. But congressmen, they do come. They go out and they visit other countries. We have offices in uh, the USAID. I say we, even though I'm retired. USAID has offices in about 100 countries right now where, where programs are being carried out. And congressmen do come and visit, and they see the benefit of these programs, and they debate them vigorously in Congress, you can be, be assured. And, and of course, USAID, as, as well as State Department personnel, always have to go to Congress and appear there and, uh, you know, explain programs. There are congressional hearings all the time on different programs for ex-countries. Uh, you know, for example, Pakistan or Afghanistan or those countries that are high profile right now, but even for smaller programs in, in lesser known countries. So it is always under review. And it's a legitimate question, of course. And on the other side, there, I'm sure there are people who are arguing that 
let's do more. Let's make it more than a fraction, not only for moral reasons, but for pragmatic reasons. I'm, I imagine the Marshall Plan gets cited it on does. that side of the argument. And the Marshall Plan really is was the beginning of U.S. assistance abroad in the modern sense. Uh, then it was followed in 1961, and in fact, it was November 3rd in 1961, John F. Kennedy, when he was president, created under presidential order the uh, United States Agency for International Development. And one of the purposes is to advance humanitarian needs and to help other countries that are less better off than we are, that are less well off than we are, and who need help. And... Um, you know, there is this large humanitarian feeling throughout the country that we do need to help other countries. On the other hand, when we do help other countries, we are helping ourselves because in turn those countries become not only our allies, but they, they, become, they become great trading partners with the United States. And so that, those, those are two big arguments in favor of U.S. foreign aid. And right now, I, I, under the current administration, and even past administration, but it's been more defined now under since Obama came into uh, power and under former Secretary Clinton, that there are three legs, uh, and the Defense Department is in agreement with this, there are three legs to U.S. foreign assistance. The defense, diplomacy, and development. Hmm. And so development has taken on added importance and recognition of the fact that it is a really valuable component of U.S. influence abroad and of U.S. foreign policy. Is, I would imagine, one of the goals, overarching goals, would be spreading democracy throughout the world. And maybe you'd argue on the agriculture and some of these other programs side that, you know, people got to be able to eat, survive, before they can have institutions which will promote democracy. Of course, and I, I was an agricultural officer. That was my career. But we learned to, uh, as foreign service officers, to manage a wide variety of programs. And most all the time I managed agricultural programs. So in Afghanistan, I spent a year and a half there managing uh, road construction and uh, power generation and transmission projects and the building of schools and hospitals and clinics and activities of that nature. But uh, one of the activities that's very prominent in almost every country in the developing world today is democracy building. And when I first started with USAID, oh, now it'd be 25 years ago, the, the democracy building was, was unknown. It was not a program in which we had specialists and in which we pursued projects uh, of development. But now it is, and it's very, very popular and very important. As an agriculture officer, I imagine that would be not all that controversial. I imagine some of these programs would get pushback from perhaps powers that be that, you know, some factions that wouldn't wouldn't like this? I don't know. Do you, is it generally popular? You go in and do these programs and you're, you're seen as popular? Are you speaking of agriculture, uh, agriculture or, or, first or of all, uh, yes. democracy building? Uh, well, maybe you could treat agriculture and then talk about democracy okay. building. Well, in most countries, uh, agriculture is an urgent need in many, many developing countries because, you know, we're trying to help them learn uh, – and, and improve their agricultural production and diversification to the point where they can feed themselves or to the greatest extent possible. Um, no country can be self-sufficient in agriculture. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very difficult. Um, and so trade becomes increasingly important in agriculture. And then so it's good to have products in which you have a uh, – which, which a country has uh, a benefit or can beneficially – you know, grow agriculture and has has a uh, uh, a leg up. You know, in in X, Y, or Z product that they can then trade with another country for other goods that they may need. So, agriculture, without much dispute, is a is an urgent need in most countries. Democracy building in today's world is also because in most cultures, uh, democracy is has not been practiced in the past. We're finding in many, many former colonies, 
and uh, and places of the world that were once dominated, uh, you know, by X, Y, or Z country. For example, former republics of the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, a big uh, there was a big push needed, and still is to help teach them how to be democratic and to have organizations and and press coverage like like UPR or other organizations that provide good press coverage and that that across the wide array of subjects that are uh, of importance to people in a, in a, in an open democracy to help make them more open also the creation of political parties and and how and how to carry out elections and how to work in uh, the also they have done a lot of work with uh, judges and in training judges and how to be better magistrates, hmm. et cetera. So, yeah, it's a very popular. I think you've you've been in the Middle East, right? You've t- yes, of talk, course. talked about that. We're seeing right now with the after effects of the, of the Arab Spring that, you know, it, it might be a good thing. You might get democracy. It might not look like perhaps the ideal that we would like to see it from the perspective of, of America. And when there's a USAID officer, you know, if you, if you were in one of those countries right now, what, what would your perspective be? Okay. Well, I, I think this would be the perspective of most anyone in USAID. I, first of all, democracy does not have to look exactly like it does in America. And there are very few countries that are democratic that parallel our system. I mean, the British are very democratic. But they have a totally different form of government, uh, you know, both national and local than the U.S. does. And and the same with Australia, the same with, well, you name the country that is democratic, and each one is a little bit different. I think the U.S. interest is to create democracy, but if people expect that that democracy has to mirror the way it looks and is carried out, in America, the way it looks like and is carried out in America, then they, that's not a good assumption to start with because it probably won't look that way. But as long as they create a, a, an appreciation for and a love for democracy, even if it's a different form than what we have, that's what we're trying to help them achieve. At least that's what I believe that we're working for. So uh, USAID, what their the role would be um – help create institutions which would support pluralistic society and democracy? Absolutely, and that's exactly Mm -hmm. what they're trying to do. Um, First of all, I I also need to to state that I'm not here representing USAID Mm -hmm. in any kind of official official capacity. um, I'm here on campus for another purpose and and was invited to come and speak uh, about USAID, which I'm very happy to do. Um, Yes, in, for example, uh, I happen to be acquainted with programs in, in various countries. For example, let's take a former Central Asian Republic of Kazakhstan. Well, all the former Central Asian Republics, there are five of them. Lesser known stands, you might call them Kazakhstan, uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Kyrgyzstan. Um, they, they, they all... Uh, of needed help in trying to, one, uh, create organizations that have uh, uh, greater appreciation for, uh, as I said, uh, improved press coverage and improved uh, credentials for press folks and help people both for newspaper as well as for broadcasting to answer or to ask important questions and how to dive into and, and find out the answers to things. Uh, it's an appreci- trying to help government officials understand how to be more open in sharing with the public, you know, what is happening in government, um, in creating not just political parties, but NGOs in those countries that are themselves then extending democracy. Uh, let me tell you about an exciting thing we were doing in Central Asia, just as an example. In the agricultural field, uh, we were trying – we were working there to – in the irrigation field uh, to help create water user associations, much the same as we have grassroots level water user associations in Utah 
They may have different names, water companies or whatever. But we were helping create these farmer-level organizations to administer irrigation water there. And, you know, the subtlety of it is in the process of doing that and having their own elections of their of their own president, their own board members, et cetera, they learn democracy and they learn how it works and they learn to appreciate it. So this is just, you know, this is just an example of the way that even an agricultural program can help extend democracy in another, in another culture that hasn't formally enjoyed, uh, you know, democracy, especially at the grassroots level. As, as an officer of the U.S. government, an agency like as a former you, officer, former, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm thinking of at the time you were, you were yes. an officer of, of uh, in USAID. You'd have a, a pretty good perspective on perception of the United States in whatever country you were you were in. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that, how that's waxed and waned, and and maybe I don't know. Were you ever in danger because of such perceptions? Or oh, I think so particularly in Afghanistan, our movements were restricted because of the danger. I never really felt danger in any other post in which I served, and that includes Colombia and, and, uh, and um, uh, Egypt, because when I was in Egypt, it was before all of the current kinds of turmoil there. But, um, you know, this is my personal feeling. I think Everywhere we went, we found that people loved Americans. They came to know and appreciate us on an individual basis, but they're not always thrilled with U.S. policy. So they like Americans. They're not always happy or thrilled with U.S. foreign policy toward their country, but they do like Americans. And I think in general, everywhere that I've been around the world, both in long-term assignments, I lived overseas for 26 years, uh, and in on short-term assignments, I find that people like Americans mm. in general. And uh, I'm curious about this. Americans have, and I think this is not just the government, this is most Americans, have a sort of um, evangelizing zeal to, to spread democracy. And we're very idealistic. I don't know how that's taken in some countries. Well, I, I'm not sure that I have sensed that evangelistic, okay. you know, a zeal Maybe for democracy the, the people building. I run around with, yeah. I think mm-hmm. may, perhaps it, you know, it's more spoken of than other kinds of programs overseas. But I, I have not. Yes, we have a zeal, and to an extent, we do want to help others. But you, you hear in the rhetoric that. But I, I think that the foreign service officers who are ser- serving overseas are not overzealous about that to the point of, uh, you know, trying to ram things down other people's throat. They're not overzealous, at least not from my experience. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was the wrong emphasis, but, okay. but there, there's this idealism. There right? is. And, and that would probably, if you got somebody to speak freely about the stereotype of the American, that would be part of it. Oh, absolutely. You know? oh, I would imagine. No, and you're, yeah. you're correct in that assumption. And we, 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 look, Americans that are working overseas, in general, they're there because they want to try to make the world a better place. They want to leave uh, the country better off than what they found it through the work that they're doing. And so in that sense, yes, we are zealous. We do want to make a difference. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're speaking with the former USAID officer, Craig Anderson. He's telling us about some of his adventures. We're talking about U.S. foreign policy today. And uh, we'll continue this discussion following a brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Stress is what you feel when you have to handle more than you are used to. When you are stressed, your body responds as though you are in danger. It makes hormones that speed up your heart, make you breathe faster, and give you a burst of energy. This is called the fight-or-flight stress response. Stress is normal, but if it happens too often or lasts too long, it can have bad effects. It can be linked to headaches, upset stomach, back pain, and trouble sleeping. 
It can weaken your immune system, making it harder to fight off disease. You probably can't delete all stress from your life, but you can get better at managing your stress. Start a stress journal, ask for help when you need it, do some deep breathing exercises, and get some exercise. Find something that works for you and enjoy this life you've been given. This is Angela Helm for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. We're uh, talking uh, today with a a former officer in the uh, USAID agency, United States um, Agency for International Development. Correct. Craig Anderson is with us. He now lives in St. George. Uh, He was a Cache Valley boy, right? I am a Cache Valley boy. Born and bred. But Um, it's too cold to live up here now. (laughs) That's that's why you're in St. George. (laughs) All right. We're talking a little bit about his experiences. I want to... Switch gears to agriculture. That's that's where you worked primarily, right? Okay. And, uh, and from what little I understand about this, this is this is not that the problems with agriculture in many nations are are not so simple that you can say well there there was a drought or there was you know there's there's bottlenecks in distribution right there's there's uh, production problems. I wonder if you talk about some of the problems you've encountered and how what solutions. Okay. that you've been working on? Well, my mind is whirring right now because to try to come up with some examples for you, there are many. Um, There are many challenges to agriculture and to the development of agriculture in other cultures, in other countries, let's put it that way. Um, Many of them are institutional. They They have not developed the institutions to support agriculture. At the either at the, you know the private level, and especially at the government level to begin with, at the public level, in countries to to support a lot of growth in agriculture, they don't have extension systems that are very well developed or even exist in many countries. Uh, they're non-existent, and so uh, it's very uh, it's a challenge for farmers to get past the stage of subsistence farming basically. And so one of our goals in many countries has been to come up with ways to overcome those particular challenges. And of course, it's been tried to to create uh, extension services that look like ours or that are similar to ours in in extending assistance and, and technology to other farmers. We're also trying in, for example, in Pakistan, where I was recently working to work with uh, private companies. There are many private companies there uh, that are working in agriculture. And so we're trying to marry those people up with programs that will work with farmers in helping. For example, a program, USAID may support a program through Land of Lakes that would work with farmers uh, that up till now, have just had their own three or four cows each, but each one of them operating independently, selling their milk, going out on their motorcycle every day with a milk, their milk cans tied to the sides of the uh, motorcycle uh, and going into town and selling their milk, you know, by the dip full uh, out, of, out of their can and then going back. And this is their income uh, with which they subsist. Well, USAID or an organization like Land O'Lakes with USAID support can come in and work with these farmers on how to improve their stock to begin with and and thereby improve production. But in the meantime, what they're doing while they're doing that is organizing the farmers and creating a, a method for collecting the milk from a lot of different farmers into one collection place where it can be cooled immediately, and the faster you can cool the milk down, the longer it is preserved and can be preserved and the better quality that it is, and then uh, make arrangements with private milk companies like Nestle or other milk companies in Pakistan, uh, of which there are several, to then send out their trucks to collect from these mid-collection points where the cooling is being taken is taking place. And so if AID can organize farmers in that way and they get a better quality for, or they get a better price for their milk, 
they're making, after a while, better quality of milk to sell, or, or more quantity of milk as well, and their cows are healthier for a longer period of time, et cetera, then uh, their income rises. And this is just one example of how uh, a development program can help overcome some of these institutional deficiencies that existed in the past. And that's one example, and there are many. And they have to do with everything from, from seeds uh, and fertilizer distribution and availability to the availability of, of like, say, uh, technical services from the government or from a private organization like Pioneer or some other seed company that, you know, has, has seed available, and getting them to provide technical mm-hmm. service to, to a wide number of farmers and helping support that kind of program. Those are a couple of examples, quickly, of, mm. of how, how uh, you know, institutions and technology can be overcome and ways in which we're working with farmers to do that. Uh, there are many, many other, mm. other programs. But, um, oh, another is the creation of organizations uh, for the process, collecting and processing of, of fruits and vegetables, for example, to give added value. So... Uh, you know, rather than just selling all the vegetables on a fresh market and 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 everything else spoils, uh, if you have the the ability to take your fruits and vegetables to a processing plant, and you're getting a good price for those fruits and vegetables that are fresh, and the processor takes care of them, you know, processes them quickly and sells them as preserves or, you know, in what other way they're processed for added value, then you then you're increasing the value, again, of the product. Uh, you're making a, a, a product chain, a value chain, all the way along to, from, you know, from the producer that can go all the way to the vendor who's selling you know, to, the, uh, to the individual buyer. Hmm. So it's a way of improving that whole chain of, uh, uh, in the food chain uh, of, in these countries, the whole value. Is, uh, are these programs being uh, promulgated in, I guess, what, you know, any nation I might think of, how how far is the reach? Oh, I think those kind of programs are being carried out, implemented, promulgated in most of the countries that you would find on the list of developing countries mm-hmm. in in USAID's book. Whereas maybe health programs may not be, but they likely are as well. Health is one of the of the things that are getting a, a lot of uh, attention these days, particularly. Uh, work uh, with, that has to do with AIDS and uh, with uh, the elimination of that uh, disease and, and, and a lot of other diseases as well. But so health, agriculture, and, 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 and democracy are in lots of places, for example. Um, and the challenges are different in each country. That, that's the other thing I'd like to just briefly explain, and that is that USAID, together with the local with the host government uh, entities involved and, and uh, also together with uh, the embassy uh, people, et cetera, we develop a develop, there is a, a program developed for each country, kind of a, a plan to be followed in that country. And so um, we may, the, 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 it may come down to the fact that with the money that is projected to be available in X country, that USAID can only work on, you know, three things for development in that country, and they're going to be focused on, you know, health, education, and democracy building, for example. And and uh, in that case, uh, if in, unless agriculture were to come out high enough, or or if uh, electrical generation were not to come out high enough, then we would not necessarily be doing. Um, work in that country. But usually economic growth, which includes agriculture, is is part of the mix in most countries. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if we could pull, uh, just, you know, winding things up, pull back to the macro level. Sure. And uh, projections of uh, population increases are, you know, pretty staggering. And uh, there's a lot of talk about how we're going to feed all the, all, the, all the people. You've worked in agriculture in many nations. I'd, I'd be interested in your your views on how that's going to be accomplished? Well, I haven't thought a lot about that in advance of coming here today. Uh, but I think, personally, I think 
I've been been around the world a lot uh, in different locations, and I have seen areas where that are very productive, tremendous areas that can be put into production better than they are now uh, and be much like the Central Valley of California. There are areas in many countries that are of that kind. And if we can advance programs to uh, to develop the agriculture in those locations better, and if we can use technology, technology is wonderful in irrigation, in, in plant production, and in uh, plant varieties, and use technology to help identify and then help growers to produce specialized crops for certain countries and then create the linkages necessary for trading those crops or selling those crops to the locations that want to buy them, then I think we can continue to feed the world Hmm. and uh, for a long time to come. Uh, And there, I do believe that the technology is the answer and it is out there. And it's not necessarily all new technology. I'm firmly one that believes in there's a lot of things sitting on the shelf that are probably more applicable in, in certain economies than the latest technology. But they're good enough to really get them going. And then later you can come in with the very latest. Uh, but uh, it is available. And there are many organizations that are focused on on getting that information out and helping those farmers. They need more support. I'll be honest with you. If anything, we need more U.S. foreign aid, not less. And I want to put in that pitch to the American people, that might, the Utahns that might be listening to that program. We need a little more in foreign aid, not less. And we will be better off for it. And we will reap the benefits as United States citizens. I'm curious about the, this older technology. Yeah. Maybe you give me, give me some for instances. That maybe, you know, some countries don't need the very latest. You just take something off the shelf that would apply to that country. Yeah. Well, it's, it's difficult, for example. Uh, well, let me use irrigation, for example. In the field of irrigation, um, you know, right now there are a lot of farmers uh, in developing countries that are just using flood irrigation. I mean, they're just flooding all of the land. They, they plant it and then they flood it, or they use very simple furrow irrigation systems. Uh, non-technical, the land is not level, uh, and, 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 uh, and production, therefore, is irregular uh, along the field. If you go out later, you'll see, you know, it, there's hardly any production in this area. It's turned to weeds, but over here it's growing okay, et cetera. Usually at the head of the canal, where there's a lot more, where there's more water, the production is better, and at the foot of the canal, there's there there's none, you know, et cetera, that kind of thing. So, in in a, in a particular farmer's field, if you can help them do simple land leveling, uh, some furrow irrigation uh, with uh, with a technology that was developed mostly here at Utah State University years ago called Surge uh, Flow. Uh, you know, it's a it's an intermediate kind of uh, technology, but it's it's one in which a farmer can irrigate the the whole row uh, and all the way down the furrows with but give even amount of watering in the root zone, get more even and better production, for example. Um, then, if you can get a farmer even to that point, then you could more easily. Uh, entice him to go into um, drip irrigation. Although there are places where farmers can take right away to drip irrigation, but it it is more difficult and it's it's more expensive, of course. And you can't always afford uh, to help a farmer get in a full drip irrigation system on his farm. But there are these other practices. And and this goes for cultivation practices. This is, it applies to, to seeds, and it applies to fertilizers. And in every way, there are these intermediate things that could be done to, you know, begin to increase production. And once a farmer sees the benefit of that, then it's a lot easier for you to introduce something more modern to him. And he would have more means with which to pay for it as well. So that's that's just a simple example. You've uh, you've made an appeal 
for increased. <laughs> that wasn't my intended <laughs> coming here, but yes, <laughs> yes. I, I am for, making for one. In, yeah. increased uh, U.S. government aid, yes. uh, foreign aid. And I wonder, and and you've made on a, on a practical, you made a practical argument that this will come back and help the U.S. Maybe uh, you could give us a, an, an, for instance, an example or two. Okay. I think that uh, if, for example, I'm acquainted with programs in, um, in various countries in, in Latin America where we have worked with them to develop um, some specialized crops and, and help them, them put in some simple irrigation systems and means and, and varieties, variety selection for uh, growing those crops and then and then getting them taken care of and shipped out quickly to markets that can use that product. Um, and for example, there's not a lot of market here for the if some vegetables called Chinese vegetables, but it's a whole variety of these very strange-looking vegetables that are known in the Far East. But they're very popular in markets, uh, in certain markets in in uh, in Florida and up along the eastern seaboard. And we developed a program in in Honduras that was working with folks who could grow these specialized products and get them out. Process, uh, not they're not processed, but get them out and shipped quickly to um, to those markets along the eastern seaboard and up coming up through uh, you know Miami and other ports like that, and uh, they, they were getting a very good return on their investment and and getting a good price for the product in those in those markets, and so finding these niche markets and then and then locating places in where that can be grown, especially during times of the year where there is no production in America, uh, because it, during the wintertime, for example, then, you know, that that's one example. And uh, I can't give you the the dates and the, the amounts and all that. I don't have that in front of me, but I am aware of the, the, the many cases where we've done that kind of thing with products from Colombia, products from Central America and Mexico as well. Uh, Working in with cacao, with specialty coffees, for example, and and cacao production for chocolate, uh, there are companies that are buying specialty coffees from Colombia and paying premium price for those, and uh, and and so improving the market chains and improving the uh, you know the value of the product as it goes along, uh, in cases where they there needs some simple processing, is a is a is something we've done. Another thing that the U.S. government is doing with the aid of USAID, for example, USDA, that is responsible for uh, for the inspection through the Plant and uh, Animal Plant and Health Inspection Service. They're responsible for inspecting all these different crops that come in from Latin America or from anywhere in the world coming into U.S. ports to make sure that they don't have any infectious uh, diseases that would, you know, be uh, harmful to U.S. to U.S. products and U.S. crops. Well, uh, they they are setting up you know centers in like in Chile and uh, they were set up there. But in you know in Colombia, for example, and I was working there and in other locations where specific crops, if they follow the protocol that has been set out, can be cleared in Colombia, for example, for direct entry into into U.S. ports with, you know, without uh, waiting in turn along with 20 other ships in, in, uh, that are already in port before they get inspected. And thereby the crop can get there fresh rather than, than uh, being already spoiled by the time it clears U.S. Uh, inspection. So that's another way that the USAID together with the uh, USDA is, is working to, to help to help, uh, you know, these markets. And, uh, and, and we've been talking about, you've, you've been talking about a pragmatic um, yeah. underpinning for this argument, uh, setting aside, which, which maybe I could bring in now, the, the moral argument. The moral argument would be a rich nation like the United States, if we can help, you know, we ought to help. And I'm sure that that's, that's part of the thinking here. 
It is. And, and you know, they're traditionally – that may have been the the primary focus of U.S. foreign aid, or the primary reason that many senators and and congressmen supported U.S. foreign assistance was because of uh, because of the you know strictly or almost exclusively the humanitarian point of view. But uh, I think that has changed a lot now, and and uh, as I stated at the be the beginning, it's. Uh, along with uh, defense and diplomacy, uh, development is seen as a means for really extending U.S. Uh, assistance to other countries, and, ex- and, and it's, a, it's a foreign policy, a means for achieving foreign policy ends as well. And so there's a lot of support for foreign assistance for that reason, too, so that it helps us achieve our foreign policy objectives, mm. uh, in, whether it be in uh, the Middle East, or in the former Soviet republics, or, or in our friends in with our friends in Latin America, and of course we we tie it up in foreign policy, and, and appropriately so, I suppose. Yeah, uh, perhaps becomes a little less idealistic, not for you know, because we're we have a goal, right? We we're, we're pursuing American interests. It does. It does become less idealistic, and um, it becomes more policy driven as time goes on. There's no doubt about that, uh, and those. Of us who were old timers in USAID, of course we we always kept you know in the back of our minds that we're ultimately we're trying to help people and make the world be a better place. And I think that that is the primary thing that still does drive uh, foreign policy in the minds of the people who are working in it. Uh, even though uh, we also realize that it's helping advance U.S. policy interests, of course. Anything else you'd like to say? No, I'd, I'd, I, I, unless you have any more particular questions, I'm just very happy to have been here and been able to spend this time with you. I'm a supporter of uh, Utah Public Radio, and uh, I listen to Utah Public Radio every day or virtually every day. And there are many programs that I like, including your morning program, Tom. And I'm very happy to have had this chance to uh, perhaps uh, enlighten the, the, the listening public about U.S. foreign policy as far as, it's, as far as assistance abroad is concerned and USAID is concerned. And uh, so thank you very much for inviting me to be here today. You're welcome. This is Contemporary Western Women. I'm Elaine Thatcher. Carol Thane Warburton is a writer and potter living in Avon, Utah. She showed early talent in both fields, but she pursued pottery when she was in college. She says that her pottery work and writing balance each other out in her life. Well, for a while, when I, when I got my first book published, I had thought, oh, I'm just not going to do pottery for a while. I'm just going to hang that up and really concentrate on writing and get that career going and I found that I was tired and bored. (laughs) I couldn't keep up with the mental fatigue that writing was. I realized that I needed the physical immediate reward that pottery is because you sit down and you make a pot and with a matter of minutes and writing you write something and nobody really sees it. If you're working on a book, it might be years before the final product is is done. And for me, I needed a more immediate response, but I also needed that physical energizing where the writing was was more, it just sort of drained me. And I I hadn't been prepared for that kind of a, you know, uh, you put everything into writing and it can be, instead of stimulating, it can be draining. So I found that with the pottery, it balances that. She and her husband, Mick, have both been teachers. At one point, their work required them to live apart, he in tiny Grouse Creek, Utah, and she in Pleasant Grove, Utah. After some discussion, um, my husband signed the contract to teach in Grouse Creek, and since I had already signed to teach at Pleasant Grove Junior High full-time, he taught out there, and I taught in at Pleasant Grove Junior High, 
and we met up on the weekends for a year. He took one child. He took our eldest out there, and I kept Ginger, and she was just this little three-year-old at the time. After that difficult year, they both taught at the tiny Grouse Creek School. It was kindergarten through 10th grade, two rooms, so we had 24 kids total. I was in one room. I did most of the English teaching. I did all of the art. I did the younger grades, math and science, just everything with the younger grades. But my husband, well, my husband did most of the math upper grade and science things for upper grade as well. But we sort of split it up with how, where our expertise was and also just what we liked. So I taught the older kids English because I enjoyed literature and writing. So I had them writing projects a lot and and doing things like that, which was interesting. So it was really fun. Now Carol practices her twin passions of writing novels and making pottery, and she lives in a rural environment that inspires her. Her talents were nurtured in many ways, and she sees the nurturing of creativity as a responsibility. I feel like all of us have a creative side that can be developed, and if it is, it's going to make a person's life much more rich and I was lucky enough to have nurturers in my life that really said the right things at the right time to me uh, to give to give me that little bit of a boost school teachers and my mother friends later on who would give me that little bit of a boost that helped me nurture that creative side but I think if we can be that nurturer for other people positive feedback works so much better than criticism. So if we can be that person that nurtures the young as they're learning and developing and growing before they get to the point where they're going to be knocked down anyway by life, then I think that's that's what we want to be. We want to be that nurturer. Contemporary Western Women is a project of Utah State University's Center for Women and Gender and Utah Public Radio. We focus on women in the Rocky Mountain region and their stories of strength, hope, and humor in all aspects of life. If you have a story to share or know someone who does, please visit the Contemporary Western Women link at upr.org or call 1-800-826-1495. I'm Elaine Thatcher. Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. So when I got ready to retire, I thought, well, I should look into Southern Utah. I was a high school librarian in Seattle, Washington, and, and I used to come back to Southern Utah every spring vacation. And I retired in 97. I'm Loann Barnes. I'm age 76. When I was a Boy Scout, we came down to St. George on an outing. It was cold in Wyoming because it was just after Memorial Day, and we got down to St. George, and it was just perfect weather. It hadn't gotten real hot, and I thought, wow, this is paradise. I'd really like to live here. I'm Dale Jean Barnes. I'll be 80 in December. So after I retired from Questar, I came down and looked all around the area and found a lot out in Leeds. And so when I came to St. George, I thought, I'll go in the BLM and find an interesting place to go. And they happened to be looking for volunteers. So I signed up and have for many years worked as a volunteer at their front desk. I was in a position where I could find out interesting places to go. And I'd always heard about this place called The Wave. Uh, It's on the border between Utah and Arizona. And they limit the number of people that can go there because it's very fragile geology. It's thin fins of sandstone that resemble a wave, a huge big wave like you'd see in the ocean. One of the colleagues that I worked with said, I reserved six tickets for my family and they can't go. I've given away five of them. There's one left. Would you like to go? And I said, yes. She had sold the tickets to my neighbors. They had one ticket left over and they asked me if I would like to go. Well, here was this gentleman. uh, The others were couples and he seemed to know where he was going. Uh, The others were were, um, unsure. He had the energy 
to, to keep us all moving along because some of this is not an easy walk. It's it, it was three miles in and three miles out. When we first started out, I thought, well, she's not very friendly. I thought, well, I'd like to get to know this gentleman better. <laughs> so she lined up different things to go sightseeing. and Yeah, we, the condors are released on the Vermilion Cliffs, So, and I knew about that from the BLM. So we did a trip down to see the condors, and then there was some rock art up a Snake Canyon in the Kayabab. One thing led to another, and we decided that we would like to share life together. So when we decided where to get married, we thought, well, why not go back to the wave? So we got permits for my daughter and her husband, and we uh, had the local bishop get a permit. So we had five permits, five tickets, and we walked back out the year later in January and were married at the wave. That's how we ended up getting married, and we've had a wonderful life since. We've been married a little over 10 years now. I think you can probably sense that the landscape that we live in is is a very important part of why we're here. Um, there's places to go and to here that I could not possibly walk to. Uh, so we have done a lot of ATVing. If anyone had told me uh, more than 10 years ago that I'd be riding an ATV, I said, no, that's not my my style at all. At first, Lauren didn't even, she said, I'm just happy riding on the back of your machine. And I said, well, what if you and I want to go for a 30-mile ride out somewhere and it quits? And I said, that's a long walk back. And so reluctantly, she's, well, okay. She got a machine and drove that 1,500 miles and said it was a basic machine. And she said, well, I want a better machine. So then we got her a better one. She's now driven about 7,800 miles on ATVs, which is quite a distance. And I wouldn't have been able to do this without Dale. (laughs) Also, we're only five miles from a lake. In the summer, the water's 80 degrees, and that's really fun to water ski in 80-degree water. So I still enjoy water skiing. I learned to slalom water ski after I retired and plan to do it till I drop. It's important to us that our grandkids um, develop a, a love for the land. Yeah, we take the kids hiking quite a bit when, when they yeah. come down. There's so many beautiful areas to take them hiking. We want them to to enjoy being on the land, to say... In the outdoors. In the outdoors. The most valuable thing I can do for this land is to instill in the next generation a love of the land. That's an important thing for us to do in our time. We've taken the kids down by the Virgin River and lucked out. We saw three turtles that that one day with the kids. Yeah, desert tortoise. We've had a great (laughs) 10 years together. It's been wonderful. And see if I can water ski for 10 more years. How about that? Good for you. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan.